Welcome to the City of Refuge Church Podcast. We are so excited that you have joined us. We are a church that is called, connected, and commissioned. We want to call all people to repent and believe in our Savior's loving grace. We want to connect our neighborhood to the unity found in the greater family of Christ. We want to commission others to live as kingdom citizens before the world and heaven. And we hope that this podcast gives you a glimpse of what God is doing in us and in the Eau Claire community. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you, worship team. Y'all may be seated. Well, good afternoon, family. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Justin Gates. I serve here um, at City Refuge, um, doing all kinds of things. Uh, And if this is your first time joining us, we're continuing the sermon series to the ends of the earth as we dive into the book of Acts and see how the early church was growing and spreading throughout the world. And as we read earlier, the sermon text for this afternoon will be coming from Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 20 where we'll specifically look at how God used the Apostle Paul to minister minister to and build up the church in Ephesus. But before we begin, will you pray with me that God will speak to us as we open his word? Father God, we thank you that you have given us your word, and that because, Lord, you have breathed your word out, it is true, and it bears all marks of authority and power. And God, because your word is powerful, we know that it can change us, that it can sanctify us, Lord, that it helps us to become more and more like you. And God, we invite your spirit here today uh, in our midst, Lord, that you would use your word through your spirit so that we become more and more like you, so that we would see who you are, or that we'd have a greater love of you and that your glory will be displayed. God, your word tells us that we are to boast about our weakness so that we will find your strength. And Lord, I confess that I am a weak man who feels frazzled. Lord, I need your clarity. I need your wisdom. Lord, I need your spirit to strengthen me and to speak through me uh, today, Lord. So help me to be faithful to your text. Help me to be faithful to you, Lord. And may you be exalted through every single word that I speak, Lord. And may we leave here today uh, just coming to savor you more and more and to be refreshed by you in your spirit, Lord. We give you this time and ask that you use it for your glory and your purposes. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. The title of today's sermon is The Way of Power. The Way of Power. Well, the beginning of September, coming up in a couple weeks, will mark the two-year anniversary of when I first started working at REI, which is this big outdoor adventure store not too far from here. I don't work there anymore, but when I was there, I was a bike mechanic. Um, And as I was there, I remember many things that kind of happened during my time as a bike mechanic. I can remember maybe, unfortunately, all the hot afternoons I spent outside helping customers put tents and other things on top of the roof of their car. Yes, you can put tents on a car. Don't ask me how uh, that works. But it is something that I did a lot at REI. And I can also recall the many fond moments that I spent talking with my coworkers, hearing more about who they are and the beliefs that they had and kind of their backgrounds. And it was just so much fun to see their perspective on life. 
But something that still or sticks with me, maybe more so than those experiences, what, uh, is what we call the co-op way. This way simply stated that we want our customers to live a well-lived life outside. This message was the core of our identity as a company, and it was the powerful driving force that directed everything that we did as Greenvesters, the name that was so affectionately and appropriately given to us of we all wore these green vests with 10,000 pockets, it seemed like. <laughs> but this co-op way was powerful enough to direct every single thing in our work ethic. We would invest many, many hours trying to learn the ins and the outs of all the products that we carried at the store. And it's in learning about all these things, there are many moments it seemed like this was just a waste of time. But all this hard work would pay off as we would get our customers the right product that they needed to fit their needs. If we didn't hold on to the powerful message of the co-op way, we wouldn't have been able to endure those many, many hours of studying. Moreover, the co-op way was powerful enough to align ourselves to the central mission of REI, which was to continue, which was for our customers to continue to be liked by us. Because our customers knew that we were committed to them having a well-lived life outside, they kept coming back to our store. And without the powerful message of the co-op way, our company would not have been able to grow and be promoted here in Columbia. And for me personally, the co-op way was powerful enough to give me purpose as to why I was servicing and building bikes day in and day out, even when it seemed like there was an endless amount of bikes to work on. There was one particular moment when I remember that there was a customer whose daughter suffered from an accident um, a couple years ago. And it's from that ship, she lost a lot of her function in her hands. And at the time, Stephen, who was like our head bike mechanic, he fashioned up a device so that she could still ride a bike, even though that she had this limited mobility. And it's from there that if we didn't believe in the co-op way of wanting people to live life outside, we wouldn't have been committed to helping this young girl get back to riding a bike and have a total change of life. And as impactful and powerful as the co-op way was to me and my coworkers, there is another way which is by far the most powerful and impactful message that the world has ever heard. And this, is, this way is the way of God. And this powerful message declares that Jesus Christ has come to rescue sinners. And during our series through the book of Acts, we've seen this powerful message spread throughout the world as various individuals who are called up by God were sent out to proclaim this great message. And we saw this happen last week in the beginning of Acts chapter 19 as Paul journeyed to the city of Ephesus and declared God's way to 12 spiritually empty men who suffered from a case of mistaken identity. And after hearing the powerful message of the gospel, these men who thought they bore the marks of eternal life have become regenerated and sealed with the Holy Spirit so that they would become true children of God. And this brings us to the text where we are today, where we see Paul leave these men and continue to journey into the city of Ephesus. And it's here, as Paul comes into the city, he faces many things of magic and mysticism and money. But we'll see how this message has the power that breeds patient endurance, that boasts true glory and brings true life change to these people that Paul is interacting with. 
And we'll start by looking at how God's way powerfully breeds patient endurance. After seeing these 12 men, be, 12 men become spiritually regenerated, Luke, the author of Acts, tells us in verse 8 that Paul entered the Ephesian synagogue. And in Paul's typical fashion, he speaks boldly to everyone who's in attendance. But he isn't just bold, that he's persuasive in his speech. His intention here is to make a compelling case for the kingdom of God to these Jews. And he wants them to know why the, the things of God's kingdom point back to Jesus Christ and the gospel message. And we've seen Paul do this before on his previous missionary journeys. He was an expert as to how the Old Testament scriptures, the religious texts that these Jewish individuals were very intimately familiar with, how they all pointed back to Jesus being the Messiah. And now inside the synagogue, the apostle continues to, to do this faithful work, and it says that he did, this, he did this for three months. But this work doesn't last long. And in verse 9, we see how some of these individuals inside the synagogue have become hardened. Instead of coming to believe in the salvific work of Jesus, these individuals held firm to the belief that another, better, stronger, more attractive Messiah was coming. After all, how could the Messiah be someone who showed weakness by dying a shameful death on the cross? How could the Messiah, or how could this Messiah be the one who come when he's flipping God's kingdom upside down so that the humble will be exalted and the proud will be humbled? But this lack of belief and this stubbornness towards the message that Paul was wanting to bring to these people eventually is met with full-blown opposition. Luke tells us that these men begin to slander the very way of God. The words and actions of these individuals turn from going on the defensive to going on the offensive. Since they couldn't make a case and provide evidence as to why they were right, they now shifted gears and intentionally spoke out against the way of God, providing hearsay evidence and rumors as to why this way was wrong. And upon facing so great an opposition... The apostle leaves the synagogue with people who did actually listen to him, and it says that they fled to the hall of Tyrannus. Now, we don't know much about who Tyrannus was, but he was probably a prominent teacher, especially since he had this lecture hall devoted to him. But it's here in this lecture hall that Paul begins to discuss with these disciples the way of God. Presumably, Paul was trying to help these disciples remain rooted and grounded in the faith, especially in the face of all the opposition that was coming to them. But it says that this happened for two years, and it had such an impact on the area that all the Jews and Greeks of Asia heard about what was happening here in Ephesus. Some important things to note about Paul's ministry is that he was engaging with people who don't yet know, or as we engage with people who don't yet know Jesus. We want to emulate Paul and to be bold in our proclamation and be persuasive as we speak to them. We want to be bold as we unashamedly tell them that Jesus is the Lord of Lords and that he is the only one who provides a way of life. And we want to speak persuasively so that we can give people positive reasons as to why Jesus is the only way and that no other religion in the world can do this. 
but remember that we give a reasoned defense for the hope that we have with gentleness and respect. We aren't like the Jewish people in the synagogue who are slandering, but rather we maintain the dignity of every man that we talk to because they all bear the marks of God himself. Our bold and persuasive speaking isn't just something that we do all at once and then call it quits, but rather it's something that we do over and over again even if the fruit that we're seeing comes at a snail's pace. And that's what Paul is doing here in Ephesus as he does this for two years. Paul knew that effective evangelism and discipleship took time. He was patiently playing the seeds of gospel truth and doctrine, knowing that as we endure the hardships that we can still see fruit grow, that God will be faithful to that and bear fruit in our ministry. Family, we need to follow in Paul's footsteps and trust that God will faithfully produce in us patient endurance as we make disciples of God's kingdom. We want to remember that to disciple, we do that through long suffering. That just as it takes time for a, speed or for a seed to sprout and to grow roots and to break through the hard soil so that they become strong enough to bear fruit, we must do the same thing. That to make healthy and resilient disciples that it's something that takes a lot of time. And we want to be patient and endure the many challenges that comes with discipling others because we want God to produce disciples that have longevity and not fragility. And as I think back onto my own life, especially in college, I was not like this. That I was the person that was quick to run away from stuff when things got hard. And this became more and more evident as relationships became harder to navigate and as the challenges of ministry began to show itself quickly. I remember there's a time in particular when there are a lot of decisions that are being made and the ministry that I was a part of that I just really didn't agree with from a philosophical point of view. I got so frustrated that I said, hey, I just want to throw in the towel and leave this whole thing behind. And I remember talking to Josh, who was one of the guys on staff at this ministry. I told him like, hey, I wanna give up this leadership position. I don't wanna have anything to do with this ministry. I just don't agree with a lot of stuff that's happening. But Josh, in his wisdom, he told me that I really couldn't bring about good change in ministry if I didn't stay rooted there. That if I just ran away, nothing would really happen. And over the course of a few months, Josh and I began to work through the disagreements that I had. And as this dear mentor patiently endured with me the disagreements that I had, he showed me how to stay in something for the long haul, that we can solve conflict together, that we can find the main points that we agree on and run in ministry together. And if it weren't for my brother coming along beside me and patiently enduring with my own frustrations, I would not have been able to see fruit in my ministry five, six, seven years down the road. Maybe you're like me and you're still growing in your understanding of what it means to disciple individuals with this patient endurance. Well, friend, if that describes you, I want to encourage you that you can use this time at this church plant to really invest in those relationships, to patiently endure that as we grow as a church plant, there's going to be many challenging situations that come up. And we have to, in those challenging moments, be patient as we make disciples and as we come alongside one another. 
God refines his people and he grows his people through his church. And as we serve alongside one another and do life together, God will give us the many opportunities that are needed so that we can grow, that we can help each other endure in the hardships of ministry and grow patience in each of us. So as I reflect on that, who is God nudging you to invest in? Or who is it that God just needs to help you grow in patience so that you can endure with them and disciple them for the long haul? And as you consider these individuals, prayerfully ask God to help produce in you that patient endurance that's needed to produce those resilient, healthy disciples. The way of God does indeed give power that breeds patient endurance, but it also boasts about God's true glory. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. As Paul is continuing his ministry in Ephesus, Luke tells us that God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And it's these miracles that were so great that it's the face cloths and the aprons that were worn by Paul that if they touched him, that they were then used to heal the sick and cast out demons. I don't know if y'all have ever worked on bikes, but I became very familiar with them at REI. Uh, as bikes, you spend more and more time with them. The grease that's on the chain and the gears, it becomes caked in dirt as the miles crack up, or um, as you increase the miles on them. And as that happens, it's very easy to become covered in grease and all kinds of things as you're working on them. So when I was a bike mechanic, I always wore an apron that would hopefully keep me clean. This apron seemed like it was too long for me, but that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> But it's inside the, the apron is I had a cloth I would use to wipe off my hands and clean off all the, the grease that accumulated over the hours I was working there. And it's in these things that they're very ordinary, but they became very gross. And what Luke is telling us in this text is God was using these very objects to perform extraordinary miracles. That's something so ordinary and so disgusting in a sense, God was using to show his glory to Ephesus. But it makes you wonder, why was God doing this? Or recall that Ephesus is a major city with all kinds of religions and magic spells and the beliefs that are interwoven throughout the population. And within this great city was the, the Temple of Artemis, and people would come to there to worship Artemis, who was the, the goddess of the hunt, of vegetation and childbirth, to, to wanting to come to her to seek prosperity, or they would cast all kinds of spells and have jewelry and all kinds of clothes kind of provide for them, that that's what they believed in. So these people in Ephesus, they wanted to believe in signs and wonders and everything in between. But by using these ordinary things, the stuff that wasn't even close to being in the same regard as these magic stuff, God was saying, hey, I can do so much better than that. God was basically saying to these people that you want to use these extraordinary things to potentially work, but I'm using these ordinary mundane things to do the extraordinary, and it's already happening. That God's way is that of using incredibly ordinary objects to show his true power. And that power will always display God's glory. But as this ha was happening, Luke tells us that there are some individuals that are trying to rob God of his glory. In verses 13 and following, we see that there are seven Jewish, or Jewish exorcists, these vagabonds who happen to be the sons of the high priest of Sceva 
We don't know much about these people, but we know that they came into the city wanting to perform some type of magic or miracles, most likely to help get money from them. They would perform these exorcisms and trying to um, capitalize on people and make money or a profit off of it. Instead of wanting just to do these little magical spells, they wanted to take it to the next level and perform an exorcism on uh, an individual. And maybe seeing how Paul was casting out demons in the name of Jesus, they wanted to do the same thing. So they come up to this guy and they declare, I command to you by the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, wanting them or wanting the demon to leave this person. I should note here that this was a common practice during the time period that people would often cite some sort of name or powerful person that they think could invoke the ability to exercise a demon. Um, and that's why these people call on Jesus' name by the name of Paul, not really citing Jesus directly. Um, we'll see what happens in that in a second. Um, but in a dramatic turn of events, these evil spirits were basically saying, I know who Jesus is. I, I know who Paul is. They're both acquainted to one another, but I don't know who y'all are. So what he's saying is because he doesn't know these people, because they're not associated with Jesus himself, an incredible thing happens here. And he says that the spirit causes this man to jump out at the seven sons and he overpowers them and does so in such a manner that they leave naked and wounded. Instead of coming away with victory and glory, these men were running away feeling shame and pain. And as comical as this scene, or the scene is, it's important to know that the name of Jesus is not something that we just fling around to powerfully get what we want. In the case of these men, they wanted to use the power behind Jesus' name to make a profit. Instead, we need to remember that the name of Jesus only has power when it's associated with the person behind it. That's why this evil spirit said that I know who Jesus is. He knows that Jesus is the most powerful person that has ever walked the earth and that Jesus himself has the absolute authority to cause any demon to move wherever he wants them to go. Moreover, understanding that the name of Jesus coincides with the person of Jesus prevents us from robbing God of his glory. These men were using the name of Jesus to glorify themselves, that they wanted to exalt themselves as if they had the same power of God. <laughs> and this is not something that worked out well for them. But when you try to see or try to steal the glory that belongs only to God, we're going to be humbled rather quickly. It's better to recognize the bounds that God has given us before we run away naked and wounded as we rob him of his true glory. And that's why we see in verse 17 that word spread around about this incident. Everyone in Ephesus heard about what happened and how the name of Jesus was used inappropriately, and they became afraid. But this incident allowed the Lord Jesus to be held in high esteem. The people of Ephesus came to a point where they knew that Jesus was, that they knew the name that he carried and what it meant, and that the people, both the Jews and the Greeks alike, knew that Jesus was a person who had absolute power and authority over all things. And as we'll see, because they recognize that, they begin to glorify him. 
And I do want to touch very briefly here on the reality of evil spirits, that the things of the demonic realm can be very scary. Unless you want to be beat up and put to shame, it's not something that we really should mess with. But we can rest with assurance knowing that no spiritual or demonic power can ever match up to the power and authority that Jesus has. That's why when Jesus in Matthew chapter 8 came into contact with two fierce demon-possessed men, he said, go, and the demons left the men into the pigs and then ran into the sea. Because Jesus has all power and authority, he can tell Satan, the chief of all the evil spirits, that he can go away and Satan will turn and run at the hearing of God's word. Family, the devil may be prowling around like a roaring lion, ready to devour everyone that comes across his path. But Jesus has given us the ability to resist him in all his schemes and all his temptations through the very armor of God. Not only has God given us the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness in the gospel of peace, which serves as the sandals for our feet, God has also given us the shield of faith, which extinguishes every flaming arrow the enemy points at us. And family, God's also given us the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And that means the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to go on the offensive against any attack that the enemy might try to throw at us. That God so powerfully defends us that, in, that there's no power, that there's no principality or no spirit that can ever separate us from God's love because he protects us with his word and with his spirit. We are so protected and cared for by God that there is not even a small wedge that will separate us between God and us. And maybe you're here this evening and you're experiencing an attack from the enemy that says that you aren't really truly loved by God. Friend, if that describes you, remember what the prophet Jeremiah says in chapter 13, verse 3, that the Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've continued to extend faithful love to you. That God sees you from afar and says that he has loved you with an eternal love, that he will continue to love you with an eternal love. This reigns true even when the doubt creeps in saying that you aren't loved by God. Or maybe you hear this evening and you're hearing the subtle voice that keeps saying you're condemned. Friend, if you're hearing that voice, remember what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. God does not condemn. He convicts us of our sins and draws us to repentance and forgiveness, but he doesn't condemn us. He doesn't condemn us because he's already set us free. Or maybe you're here this evening and during a season of life when it just seems like everything's crashing all around you and You're starting to believe that God doesn't care about you. Friend, if that describes you, remember the words of King David in Psalm 34, when he says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all. God sees you in your distress, and he descends down to you from his heavenly throne to be near with you, to be present with you, and to give you help in your time of need and he will surely save you from your affliction. Family, as we cling to the promises that we are given to us by God through his word, we can have confidence knowing that God through his Holy Spirit will powerfully fight 
fight for us on our behalf to defeat any lie, temptation, or attack that Satan wants to bring. Satan and the evil spirits are clever. Just as the spirit can discern that these individuals didn't have power, they can discern all kinds of ways to come on the attack against us. But God is mightier and stronger than any scheme that Satan has. Therefore, we can stand ready and not fear whenever the enemy decides to attack us. And as we see God fight for us, he will certainly be glorified in those moments. Well, we've seen how the way of God has the power to help us patiently endure many things, and that we know that the way of God has the power to bring about his glory. But we'll see here in a second that God's way also has the power to bring about true life change. Look at verses 18 through 20 with me. And it says, And many who have become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who have practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. And after seeing all these extraordinary miracles that God was performing and the power that stood behind the name and person of Christ, a revival has now taken over the city. We're told in verse 18 that many people came confessing and disclosing their practices, all the occultic magic that they've been believing and been practicing for so long, they're now confessing that to one another. Another way to translate this verse is to say that these individuals are making known all their spiritual and magical practices fully from their heart, that they're disclosing everything that was in them and saying that they messed up. It's basically like saying, hey, I didn't just do magic today, but I did magic in all these practices throughout the past week because I thought this is where I'd find my salvation, this is where I'd find my hope, this is where I'd find my true provision in that they're confessing all this because they no longer want to perform that, but trust God. That there is so much confession and repentance happening that they say in verse 19 that they collected all the books and burned them. That the Greek here gives us more clarity in that these people were basically taking book after book and throwing it into an all-consuming fire. That they utterly destroyed every scroll and magic spell that has been associated with them of all their past spiritual practices. That there are so many books that they were throwing into this fire that it amounted to 50,000 pieces of silver. To put that in perspective of how much money that actually is, if I worked every, in this time period, might I add, if I worked every day of the week for the entire year, it would take me 128 years to amount that amount of money that they burned with these books. This was an insane amount of money, so much so that it will upturn their entire economy, as we'll see next week as Jay Will preaches. And it's in this way, speaking of great sacrifice and repentance, that the word of the Lord began to spread and prevail. In his power, God was giving the Ephesians and all the people throughout the area to truly give up the things that they were clinging to and follow him. The power of God's message has been triumphing, and we can clearly see how God's way has brought true life change to these people. But you might be asking yourself, why in the world would all these people go to the extreme to follow Jesus and to change their lives? Well, friend, that's a great question. There are two answers I'd give to that. One is that Jesus requires that we sacrifice everything that we have to follow him. 
Matthew chapter 16, after speaking about how he would suffer and be killed and then rise again on the third day, Jesus tells the disciples in verses 24 to 25 that if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What Jesus is saying here is that if we truly want to follow him and we have to deny ourselves, that we deny our natural desires for comfort, for fame, for power and money, even to the point of death. This doesn't mean that we flippantly go about our life wanting to die, but rather it means that we should be willing to give up everything that we have because we want to follow Jesus. But that brings us to the second answer, and it's wholly worth giving up everything to follow Jesus because it's so much better. Jesus says that if we lose our lives, if we deny ourselves and the natural desires that we live in, in the ways that we only want to please ourselves, if we deny those things, he says we'll find life. But this can only happen if we look to him. But what makes the life that Jesus gives us so much better than these things of this world is that he gives us eternal life. God, in the great love that he has for mankind, sent Jesus to save the world, that he gave up his heavenly throne and all the rights and privileges that came with that to come down to us to save the sinner. This included Jesus giving up his own life. And as he laid lifeless in the tomb, that God, through the Holy Spirit, showed the infinite power that he had by raising Jesus up from the dead that Jesus defeated the finality of death by rising in victory, and he now sits again at, back at his heavenly throne. This is the way that Jesus established, and that there is no other way like this. This is the most powerful way the world will ever know, and he's calling us to follow him by giving up everything that we have. And this is the way that the Ephesians followed as they destroyed their false idols, as they all the idols that they once placed their trust in. But now they no longer saw the merit in magic or money, but they only saw everlasting life in Jesus Christ. They knew the power that can only come from God himself, so they sacrificed, or they sacrificed everything that they had to pursue him. Family, if you decided to give up everything that you have for the sake of pursuing Jesus, you can be confident in saying that the way of Jesus will always lead you to eternal life. If you've given up the evil things that you once practiced, the sins that you once held on to uh, from being with God, and if you truly gave them over to say, I want to follow God no matter what, God will give you a greater joy, and that is to be with Him for eternity in His very presence as you stand unashamed before His throne. That is the Jesus we follow, and that is the way that He proclaims. And just as we follow God in the, as we follow the way of God, and as Jesus followed the way of God, as He um, submitted Himself to God's will and was obedient to that, we too can follow in our older brother's footsteps. That we can give up ourselves, our plans, and our comforts as we pursue the way of God. And as I wrestled with this text, I realized over this past week there are many things that I still need to give up in order to pursue the Lord. I was just talking with Vivian and Jay Will and James earlier about how I saw so many people come to, to Riverside this morning, so many college students and young adults, that God has given me such a, priv a privilege to be with them and to minister to them for over two years. 
But as I transition here, that's something that I had to give up so I can be fully invested here. And it's hard, but it's so much worth it. There's so much better because it's worth it. <clears throat> and for those of us who call see a refuge home, maybe something you need to lay down in order to be invested here and to truly follow Jesus is that you had to sacrifice your time and your talents. And as our little church continues to grow, that the needs that we have are also continuing to grow. And to be a place that's truly connected to one another, that as we live out one of our values of being connected to one another, that we need to use the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given each and every one of us to serve one another. And sometimes that means we sacrifice our time by not watching that Netflix show or maybe not getting that extra hour of sleep so that we can come together and serve the body that God has uniquely given us each different gifts that we can use to bring glory to himself and to build up the body in love and to edify the body and to show God's love to one another. And some of the ways that you can serve here at City Refuge is to be on the worship team, that Leo would love to talk to you about what that means to be connected. That if you have the, the gift of welcoming people and trying to create an inviting space to, to bring people into, we'd love to help you get connected to the hospitality team. Or maybe you just want to show kids about who Jesus is and to love them well. We would love to help you get connected to our children's ministry. That these are all different avenues that we can use that God can work through us to display his power and his glory as we serve one another. God's way has always been and will ever be powerful. His way brings true life change. His way will display his true glory and his way will allow us to endure the things in life with patience and endurance as challenges arise. And as we do all these things, God will surely show his power. He will be glorified, and he will still be exalted above all things. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you're a God who is so powerful. God, we thank you that through your power, Lord, that you have displayed the message which has come to save men, to save the sinner and to reconcile them back to you, to provide a way of life to be with you for all eternity. God, I pray for all of us here, Lord, that that powerful message will resonate in our hearts so that you will give us the ability to patiently endure the things that are difficult to show your true glory not only to us, but to the city, to this neighborhood. And God, I pray that that gospel message will resonate in our hearts so that you will change our lives, so that we can give up everything to follow you. For Jesus, you are so much better. You're worth everything that we risk and everything that we give up because we get to be with you. So God, I pray for my friends here, Lord, that you will minister to them continually that you will show yourself to them, to remind them of the joy that they have in you, Lord, that you will powerfully speak to them to give them endurance to run the race that you've called them to run, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Please stand and sing with us. <laughs>